0: If you're an executive, entrepreneur, seasoned investor, or just a student of the game, you'll love The Great Fail, Adweek's entrepreneurship podcast of the year, a show that artfully uncovers some of the biggest fails in business history and how it might have been prevented. The Great Fail is entertaining, informative, and told through a true crime narrative in under 30 minutes that keeps you at the edge of your seats.
1: So check out The Great Fail wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Macmillan Publishers is the only Big Five publishing company with a dedicated podcasting team, and their vice president, Kathy Doyle, knows a thing or two about digital media and podcasting. In this episode of On the Mic with AdResults Media, Nathan Spell and I sit down to discuss Macmillan's podcasting strategy, recruiting talent and listeners, being a woman in the podcasting industry, and Macmillan's newest immersive podcast experience, Driving the Green Book. So let's get started.
1: So I think at the end of the day, everything we do seeks to be part of the same mission. My dream has always been to have podcasts be a critical tool for our editors to use in the acquisition process. Don't tell Marshall this, but I remember trying to poach one of your writers. A show needs a plan.
3: Kathy, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself for our listeners, that would be awesome. Sure.
1: My name is Kathy Doyle. I'm the vice president of Macmillan Podcasts in New York. How did you get started with Macmillan? So I joined Macmillan in 2012, and my career up until that point had really been in all forms of digital media. I was actually on the original team that built and launched the Wall Street Journal online back in the 90s. So that was a really great entry into digital media and the ways that it can help consumers gather and use electronic information. So I kind of kept on my career throughout that period, doing a lot of different development projects for Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal, and did a lot of B2B and B2C development in digital media, mostly web-based and software-based development projects. And at the end of 2011, started a conversation with Macmillan. They were looking for someone to run their largest digital network called Quick and Dirty Tips, QDT. And it was a very large-scale website that still exists today, but attached to it was a podcast network. And it really started out as a podcast network before podcast networks were truly even a thing. They started podcasting in 2007. That happened through um, a, a joint venture with Mignon Fogarty, who is Grammar Girl. An editor there picked up the phone, had heard about what she was doing, She was a freelance editor at the time and was finding that a lot of her clients in the Silicon Valley were making the same kinds of editing and grammar mistakes in their materials. And she'd heard about this sort of audio thing that wasn't even quite called podcasting at that point. This was like in 2006. And she thought, you know, I'm going to walk the walk. And she decided to start recording editing tips for her clients, mostly because it was just a really efficient way to disseminate them. And she started doing that um you know created an avatar and became grammar girl john sterling at Macmillan literally picked up the phone to talk to her at the end of 2006 about a book and both of them sort of really quickly recognized that it could be something much more and uh, formed a joint venture in 2007 which is still profitable and in place today and that's the network that i run quick and dirty tips then a couple of years ago You know, I went to senior leadership at Macmillan and said, gosh, we're having such great success with this network and these short format subject matter expert hosted shows that are all similar to Grammar Girl in that they provide quick, actionable information to consumers in a variety of verticals. But we were sort of trying to fit authors into that format, which is a little bit restricting. Mm -hmm. So we started a second network called Macmillan Podcasts, where we do more freeform. We've done everything from science fiction to true crime to biography. Um, Now we have a history podcast. So all in all, we've got about currently running about 15 shows. Some of them are weekly. And we've exceeded about 340 million downloads. So it's been quite a trajectory.
0: It's so cool that it started from just like that realization of how practical it was to have a quick audio tip um, and built into something like over time um maybe kathy could you tell us a little bit about the overall strategy for podcasting at Macmillan? like how do you guys approach recruiting talent and developing content
1: that's a great question so i think at the end of the day everything we do whether it's a book or a podcast at Macmillan, seeks to be part of the same mission right which is to develop great content, great stories, and to get them in the hands of as many readers or listeners as we can around the world. We're so fortunate as a global publishing house to be able to draw upon the resources of our imprints for talent. So we have Henry Holt, for example, uh, Tor, which is our science fiction imprint, St. Martin's Press, Flatiron Books. We've actually done podcasts with authors from all of those imprints. On the QDT side, it's more a matter of finding the right subject matter expert to host a vertical and typically we will look to find verticals where either there are content gaps across the podcasting ecosystem or it happens to be a vertical where Macmillan has just a lot of talent that we could bring onto the platform so it kind of works in a lot of different ways
0: so it sounds like the podcast division is sort of it really is integrated into the overall strategy of Macmillan as a whole as a publishing house is that correct
1: it is and you know we spend a lot of time talking like my dream has always been to have podcasts be a critical tool for our editors to use in the acquisition process, right? It's definitely something that gives McMillan a leg up since we're the only one of the big five that is actually doing this um, you know, with a full-time team. Um, but we also do a lot of educating within the organization. You know, we do roadshows, or at least we did pre-COVID, where we could actually spend time in person with our colleagues. We did a lot of roadshows where we would go from imprint to imprint and just educate them on podcasting and how it can help their authors. So, Because not every author is obviously going to be a good fit for us. We're a small team. We can't take on that many new initiatives every year. But what we can do is take those authors and bring them onto the QDT platform. Last year alone, we surfaced 80 Macmillan authors on that platform in one way, shape, or form, whether that was through running audio excerpts that were relevant to some of the verticals, like grammar, like nutrition, like psychology, um, having authors obviously on as guests, If we have open ad inventory, we can use that for book promos. And then we can do blog posts on the web portion of the network, the large website that has the transcripts from every episode. And we can run additional new and bonus content from other authors who maybe aren't podcasting with us. So it's a a very well-oiled machine um, that works really well for the organization, the greater good, I like to say, of the organization. I'm
3: I'm curious because... um... Obviously, y'all have a great strategy as far as uh, recruiting talent, but how exactly are y'all marketing
1: your podcasts and attracting listeners? That's such a great question. And as you know, it has become incredibly competitive. I think there's like I looked this morning like one point seven million podcasts now available. when I first started, that number was under two thousand. So it's become really, really challenging to find and develop an audience. So we've just we've learned over the years, you know we do what a lot of the other big networks do which as i was just saying we use our own platform as an in-house marketing tool and that's great because it's it's free to us and it gives great levels of impressions and downloads for authors um, throughout the organization uh, i have a secret weapon her name is morgan ratner she's been with us for several years she's really um, deepened our relationships with all of the different distributors apple spotify stitcher everyone so we spend A lot of time trying to be a great partner. Um, We also do some syndication. We have um, Karen Hertzberg, who's our editor. We have relationships with um, Scientific American. They will take portions of our transcripts along with a link to the full audio and integrate that into their editorial content. So that's a great, and we do the same for them. So it's a great back and forth. We work with Psychology Today. Uh, Every month, they will run content from our Savvy Psychologist, again, with the link back to the podcast. Grammar Girl has courses on LinkedIn. Um, And I know perhaps we can talk a little more a little bit later about Driving the Green Book, which was a collaboration with Apple. So I think we have just learned how to take the content that we think will be of value to other platforms outside our own ecosystem and work those relationships in ways that are beneficial for listeners and help us diversify and expand our audience.
0: So in addition to, you know, expanding your audience, there's always the question of how do you monetize that that sort of reach. How do you guys approach advertising?
1: So I think we have we've been doing the host red ads. In fact, it's so funny because I actually was looking through some old email the other day and I came across an email from Ad Results from 2012. Wow. So we've actually we've actually had deep roots with the advertising community since that time. In fact, I I virtually remember um, don't tell Marshall this, but I remember trying to poach one of your writers back in 2012. It didn't work. She stayed with you. Um, but we, so we've been doing host red ads since, you know, 2007. Most of our shows are represented by mid media and have great sell through rates. The quote that I like to use from one of the mid sales executives is that our shows are safe havens for advertisers. You know, we have ad operations down to a science. Michelle Margolis, who's our ad operations specialist is really well-skilled at taking what I call sort of a giant game of telephone. And you guys know this better than anyone, right? Because it starts all the way at the company who has a product manager or an ad manager who has a great idea for how to leverage podcasts but doesn't really know how to take that all the way through to the end of the funnel, which, of course, is the host of whatever show that campaign comes on. So it's a long process, and it's a process that um, is quite manual to some extent. So she's really good at just when, when a campaign comes in, She'll work with mid to make sure the talking points are, are very authentic for the host. And then, you know, literally take it through that pipeline and make sure all the way through to if it's direct response, making sure that we, we test the code that we're given, the URL that we're given, make sure it works before we execute the campaign. I mean, we know, we know how to do this. We've been doing it for a very long time. So we'd love to see those occasional branding campaigns that are coming in. Uh, we've now also started to do some injection of announcer red ads. On the platform, we're um, as of earlier this year, all of our nearly 7,000 episodes in our archive are set up for dynamic ad insertion for the first time. That was an incredible project that, as you can imagine, was quite labor intensive, but we know we'll have great payoff in the years to come. And then I think too we diversify our revenue in some other ways beyond advertising. We do some licensing. For a long time, our podcasts were the exclusive uh, in-flight entertainment for United Airlines. They were very deep in their in-flight entertainment system, but they were there. Um, And we do some stuff, like I said, with LinkedIn and a couple of other outside opportunities.
3: Now, I know that you listened to our Women in Podcasting series. So I'm curious, as a woman in podcasting, were there any unexpected obstacles that you faced when you
1: were breaking into the industry? Not so much in podcasting, although I will say in the early days, 2011, 2012, you know, podcasting has deep roots in comedy. So I definitely did feel outnumbered to some extent. And this is a great series, by the way, I'm so honored to be part of it. You've had some great guests on this. Um, But I will say early on in my career, I actually started my career in television. And I was right out of college hired as an associate producer for an NBC News affiliate in New England. And within a couple of months, the nighttime assignment editor had gone out on a very sudden, very unexpected medical leave. And in a television newsroom, the assignment desk like literally sits up above the newsroom. And they're sort of responsible for the heartbeat of what's going to happen for that day's newscast. They assign crews. They pick the stories. They respond to breaking news. And I was so excited because the news director literally came out. This happened so suddenly. He came out of his fishbowl on, um, office and came up to me, grabbed me by the shoulder, and pulled me up to the top of the assignment desk and said this is your job now because <laughs> they they had no one for the night shift it was 2 to 10 p.m. and i was really like thrown into the fire it was i was in way over my head i was 22 years old and i remember feeling this is going to be an amazing opportunity for me to learn from some of the women in this newsroom and there was a female anchor there I've never told this story before there was a female anchor there who i really looked up to the four years I was at university in that market, I had watched her and idolized her to some extent, and she just turned out to be an incredible bully she every assignment I gave her was wrong, every crew I assigned her to was wrong every time I did background research, it wasn't enough you know she just and she would admonish me publicly in front of the rest of the newsroom and That stayed with me for, so I was doing a good job. You know, she was the only person in the whole newsroom I had a problem with. And I was 22 and straight out of college. And that has stayed with me for all of these years. And I think has led to me being an advocate for women, not just women, for for everyone starting out their career. I work really closely with Emily Miller on our team, who feels as passionate about this as I do. We're constantly doing informational interviews for students who are just coming out of school. I'm a mentor at Macmillan. I'm a mentor at the Podcasting Academy. Um, we do, we'll do. we bring in university communications students or media students who want to learn more about publishing. Everybody at Macmillan knows that they, if they get a call from me, it's likely going to be, hey, there's a senior from Wake Forest visiting New York. Do you have 15 minutes to tell them about your job? And I've helped a lot of people get jobs. So I always tell my kids, you know, you can learn so much more from what someone does wrong than what they do right sometimes. And I feel like for me, it took me many years to realize it, but that was a lesson that I benefited from because it made me so much more sensitive to helping people out, just starting out in their careers and, you know, understanding that a simple explanation can go a long way toward helping them feel confident in their roles and really grow and develop. So I think that's a long-winded way of saying that was probably the one and only time I really had a challenge with another woman in my career.
0: I think it's incredible that you turned that into such a force for good though and, and turned that into, you know, a sort of like you said, an example of how not to be and to set a, a totally different example um and be, you know, a force for helping younger people break in. I think that's you know that's such a cool outcome. Um so I'm I'm curious. We've, that's such a big lesson already. I'm curious what other, you know, what would you say is the most interesting thing you've learned so far in the, you know, in your career making content for Macmillan um, in the podcast form or, or just in general?
1: Yeah, that's a really simple answer. It's hard work, hmm. right? I think there is still, even so many years into this industry, a perception that you can put a person behind a microphone and they can develop a great podcast. I just shared something with my team this morning that I read. I read a lot of industry stuff and I love it when people take the time to explain a show needs a plan. You know, you need to make sure that you're working with a team and everyone's under the same assumptions about how a show is going to turn out. That can be really challenging. If the host or the talent has one idea, the producer has another idea and the marketer has another idea. So we work really hard to develop, a very expansive brief for every show that we do. We do pilots. We take the time to really craft that audience in our mind, like who is that core listener? And everything we do tracks back to that person, right? You're always, you have that person in your head while you're developing content, while you're setting the stage for how your production values are gonna be, what your sound design is gonna be like. So really just, I think, making sure people understand that the process is much more involved than they probably think. And that's why it's so exciting when you when you listen to a show and you're like, oh my gosh, listen to that sound design. Or that is an incredible way of telling a story. I listened to an NPR uh, show this morning where it was about the Constitution. And they had kids asking questions, and the author was answering questions and trying to pull from where in the constitution that question came from and give some context and meaning to it. And I was like, that is brilliant. What a great way to educate children on the Constitution. So, I mean, finding those nuggets and those great shows that really do their job in terms of telling a story and telling it well and leaving the listener with something that they can take away, there's no better job in the world when you do that well.
0: It's amazing to think, like, no one seems to look at a, a polished film and think, if I just had a camera, I could make that. But for some reason, when we hear a great piece of audio. It seems like, you know, there's, we, we maybe miss the, the, all the behind the scenes work that goes into it.
3: We've been doing this for about a year now. And, um, I was thinking about this the other day. I honestly feel like we just recently kind of hit our stride. (laughs) I, I really feel like the first year was a lot of, a lot of stumbles and a lot of various learning experiences, even though we, we work in the podcast industry and I personally have been in the industry for about five years, getting this off the ground was, was an experience.
1: You know, Lindsay, that's such a good point. And I think, unfortunately, we don't always have that kind of time. Uh, I'm, it does take time to hit your stride, for sure. And there's a lot of pressure, particularly on shows at networks where profit and profitability is, is critical. They have to sort of try to hit those benchmarks within the first couple of episodes. And it, you're absolutely right. It, t- it can take four, five, six or more episodes before you really start to develop that core audience and t- until the host can hit that stride. So So
3: you mentioned driving the green book earlier, and I kind of wanted to bring the conversation back to that new podcast. Um, If I remember correctly, it dropped on September 14th. So can you tell us a little more about the show um, as well as its integration into
1: Apple podcast and Apple Maps? That was a really cool thing that I read about. Thank you. Yeah, it, it dropped that week. And coincidentally, that was the same week that iOS 14 dropped, which is how the Apple Maps piece sort of came to be, which I'll get to in a minute. But we started planning for that show, you know, even the year before with Alvin Hall, who's an educator and a BBC journalist who is really considered to be one of the leading experts on the Green Book in our country. We sent him on the road along with Janae Woods Weber, who's an activist and former attorney, and they really recreated a Green Book-inspired trip, you know, what it was like for Black Americans to travel. The Green Book, as you may know, was used as a travel guide for Black Americans during Jim Crow and segregation as a way to get them from place to place. They could look up places to eat, places to stay, places to avoid. And Alvin grew up in the Deep South and was part of the Great Migration, the last wave of the Great Migration, and came to us with just a real passion for taking his experiences, his knowledge on the road and knew that he could create a series That was really about a very underreported time in American history. So we sent him out with a producer uh, last summer. They came, it was a 2,100 mile road trip from Detroit to New Orleans. And when they came back, they just had, you know, we started to listen to the raw tape and it was just incredible. You know, we knew we had the honor and privilege to tell these American stories in a format that they really haven't been told in before there was the movie, but there's never really been a podcast about the Green Book. And we also, you know, started to work with Flatiron Books on developing a book. And then as the series started to come together, uh, we brought on Jaleka Lantiga-Williams and Cedric Wilson, her producer, to to sort of finish out and round out the team. And we started to think about how we were going to bring these stories to life and bring them to as wide of an audience as possible. And we started talking to Apple Podcasts because we've always been collaborating with them over the years of Rondi shows. And we actually went to them and said, listen, music played a really important part in this series. They interviewed a lot of musicians. There was a lot of conversation about music. Music was such an integral part of life uh, at that time in in our country. Of course, it still is today. And they obviously listened to music while they were taking the actual trip. So we knew that we knew that we could come up with a great music playlist. Um, We also knew that Alvin had a lot of resources for people who perhaps wanted to deepen their research on this topic once they heard the series and then we kind of thought i don't know is there something we can do with apple maps so we went to them with a deck that included apple maps but we really didn't have any specific idea for what if anything we could do and they immediately put us under nda and we found out very quickly that they were working toward the launch of iOS 14 and we're developing some really cool, in addition to this feature, uh, new features for the map part of the, their ecosystem. And they were developing these very curated, very visual map guides. So it was an incredibly perfect opportunity for us to develop a very immersive, very complimentary experience to go with the podcast where you could actually feel like you're taking the trip with Alvin and Janae. So we work with their team and literally launched that the same week that the podcast launched because coincidentally, we had no idea when we set our release date for the podcast, but iOS 14 introducing map guides launched the same day. So it was, uh, some of it was luck. Some of it was just great collaboration and planning with the folks at Apple who were just so supportive of the mission of the show and helping us to develop these complimentary resources. I just saw yesterday that Aaron Mankey from Lore introduced a new map guide so he's the second podcast to develop one for cemeteries that are covered in some of his series which i thought was really cool for his horror podcasts but i think we're going to see more and more creators leveraging tools like this that can take a podcast and really bring it to life in ways that up until now we haven't been able to do so i hope i answered your question that's kind of how that came to be Um, and it's just been an incredible experience you know to to work with them and to to have the podcast be so present on all four of the major pillars of the Apple ecosystem. We're very proud of the work.
3: Yeah, I, I just, I love the idea of just the immersive aspect of it and, and really being able to kind of experience it as you listen to the podcast. I think that that is just such an, an amazing idea.
1: Yeah, I, we did too. We did too. And we're getting a lot of great feedback from listeners that they're enjoying the map guide. So, um, and if you get a chance, I mean, what's also really cool is that if you're in Apple music and you you go to the playlist. There's a massive link back to the podcast, so the cross-linking within the platform is unprecedented for us, any other show that we've ever done, and really does round out the collection really nicely. You know, we're hoping. In fact, I just approved an ad for a Macmillan catalog for the podcast for the academic market, because it's our vision that at some point, perhaps all of these resources could serve as a first-year experience for college and university students. But um, it just—it has a really long tail. And these are underreported stories that just give great context and meaning to what it was like to be a black American traveling during this time. And sadly, you know we had to actually step back and update some of the episodes before we released them, because keep in mind this all started back you know in 20, summer of 2019 before the racial unrest happened in our country. So Alvin really wanted to get it right, of course, and make sure that he was being very sensitive and weaving in. Contextual references to what's unfortunately happen, happening in our country now in terms of racial unrest. So it was, a, it was a privilege and an honor to work on the series. And we knew that these were just really important stories that had to be told right.
0: What would you say was the biggest? You know, just imagining, like Lindsay was saying, the immersive thing is what drew us in, in addition to the, like, the timeliness and the need for this, these stories to be told. Um, I'm curious what was the challenge or what challenges were present dealing with new technology like this as you're developing new content?
1: I think just making sure that each aspect could stand on its own. So Mm -hmm. even if you're just experiencing the playlist or you're just experiencing the map guide, you'll come away learning and learning more than you knew going into it about this time in the Green Book and and what it was like. Um, I think too, for us, The challenge that we faced was we were only halfway, not even, halfway done recording the series in our studios when COVID-19 hit, and we had to step away from our studios. We're still not back in our studios. So we had some challenges there, you know, just ensuring that we could develop a series that sounded uh, as good as we wanted it to sound and that production values were as good as they would have been had we done them in our own studio. Then we ended up having Alvin record a lot of it in his home. And we did have some... um, recording time at a contactless studio in New York to make sure that everybody was safe. But that's certainly that. And then, of course, everything that happened with the racial unrest just really forced a lot of changes that I think pr- things probably would have gone a little bit differently had we stayed working in New York in our studios and just you know plowing through the series. Our original release date was May. We didn't end up releasing it until September.
3: So I'm curious as to uh, what some of your favorite podcasts are and what you're currently listening to.
1: So I have three excellent recommendations for you. Um, the first is deep six. Are you familiar with Tom Webster and the work that he does at Edison Research? Yes, we are <laughs> He's of course you know Tom he's he does incredible work, but you know in the last couple of weeks, Spotify has introduced this amazing new feature where some full format music can actually be integrated into podcasts, it's a game changer. And I think we're going to see a lot of DJs creating podcasts now, taking advantage of this, this um, opportunity to really integrate full tracks of music into their podcasts. It's never been done before. So last week on Deep Six, I had such a blast listening to this episode. Tom did something that took Christopher Cross and crisscross Cross and sort of did this music episode where he plays full tracks from different artists and kind of walks through this, this playlist. It's, it was really, really incredible. And then the other one is, uh, season two of Good Kids from Lemonata Media. Also an amazing team of women creators. They have just done, um, some really great work. I don't know if I can say this, if we have, um, but the tagline for the show is how not to raise an asshole. So and my kids are grown, and I I think, and I hope, and I pray that I didn't raise assholes, but the approach is just very fresh, and honest, and great for this current time period. So it's it's a wonderful series that I encourage you to check out. We've done some really great interviews. And then Unfinished, uh, the series I listened to was Deep South. That's one of Stitcher's um, documentaries. And that was kind of comparable. It was about a lynching that happened, I think, in forget what year it was in the Deep South, but it was it was a fascinating story that also had some real important historical context. So those are three.
0: So Kathy, do you have any final words of advice for content creators out there, maybe people that are already developing uh, podcasts or maybe thinking about developing podcasts?
1: You know, it comes back to some of what we already talked about, like do the work. Mm-hmm. Think about who your audience is, have that person in your mind, literally sitting in your mind as you're developing your plan for your podcast. We get a ton of pitches, you guys probably do too, for new shows. And I'm always amazed when they're half baked. You know, again, it goes back to what we were saying before about how there is this perception that there's just all this money and you know people are just going to throw out an idea for a podcast and it's going to be an instant success. But I'll get pitches from people and they'll say, you know, there'll be a, a slide in the deck that says, we just want to cover our production costs, but there's no production budget included in the, in the pitch. So they want us to figure all that out for them. I mean, I just think, do the work, like do the proper planning, hmm. figure out the aesthetic of the show, figure out who your audience is going to be, you know, work with great people, you know, have, have really strong content. And then we do a lot of, when we plan for a new show too, we do a lot of due diligence. We will very carefully check out the competition, see what other shows in that genre are out there, and try to really also work with our partners to find out where the content gaps are so maybe we can fill them, you know, to try to do something original that hasn't been done. That's that's becoming increasingly more challenging, I think, as, as more and more people join, and especially more and more major media companies join podcasting.
2: If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes and leave us a comment with your feedback, questions, or ideas for future segments. If you would like more info on Ad Results Media and what we do, please visit us online at adresultsmedia.com. This podcast is an AdResults Media production.